We are in Genesis chapter 21 today, uh, verses 1 through 7 is what I'm going to read. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son to who, who was born to him, whom Sarah born, bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I know you're back there, Emma. I'm going to put you through your paces today. We are going to be going over the whole chapter, but I figure trying to have a little more mercy on you guys for your legs to have you stand. But of course, I stand the entire time. I probably should have just had you stand. But anyway, that's just a bit of a joke. Um, Today, Senior Bulletins, uh, Happy Mother's Day, Sarah. Um, I don't normally do special uh, sermons for different holidays other than Christmas and Easter in our culture. In fact, last year for, uh, so there's there's no special announcement for Sarah Biddle, in case anybody's wondering, not at all. uh, I normally don't do uh, special sermons except for, you know, once again, Christmas and Easter following any kind of calendar. In fact, I believe last Father's Day, I called it my last Father's Day sermon. Um, so I had no intention of doing a Mother's Day sermon this year, except the Holy Spirit had a different idea, because we're at chapter 21 of Genesis right now in the life of Abraham. And of course, this is the birth of Isaac. And we see him in the very first verse right here, verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said from the last chapter when he told her within the year she would give birth. Um, God once again had other plans. Um, This week we are on chapter 21 about the birth of Isaac, who is birthed by the power of the Spirit. Isaac's name means he laughs. And I don't know about you, um, we've been doing this series through the patriarchs, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we've been going through Abraham's life, and the last two chapters have been pretty dark. Like two chapters away was Sodom and Gomorrah. And we have God raining fire and brimstone from Yahweh to, uh, through Yahweh. Fire and brimstone falls on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying the whole place. And then last week, last chapter we were in, chapter 20, we had Abraham committing the same mistake he had made before in Egypt by taking his wife and saying, it's, she's actually my sister And that caused a big issue with Abimelech. So now we're in chapter 21. He laughs. He laughs. Um, Isaac means he laughs. And I'm ready to laugh. Happy Mother's Day, Sarah. His name means he laughs. We're ready for something brighter right here. And God is deserving. This is one thing in this chapter right here. So I didn't read the rest of the chapter here. We have laughter. We also have weeping. Whether we are laughing or whether we are crying, God is deserving of worship. God is deserving of our worship despite blessing or the consequences of our own actions because he is our hope and source of every good thing. 
If there's one thing I think a main idea from this chapter or from Abraham's life is that Abraham had this living hope in his faith. Sometimes we see faith as like, oh, I agree to these sets of beliefs, but our faith is so much more than that. It's a relationship with a living hope. And hope is a powerful thing. Tyrants know this. Tyrants know hope is a dangerous thing. So they try to stomp it out. But hope is such a powerful thing. I think the greatest illustration of this was in Dr. Kurt Richner's um, uh, experiments with mice, with rats. Now, um, fair warning here, if you are an animal lover, lover, this is a bit dark. In fact, I kind of question whether or not I want to talk about it today, but it's probably the greatest example of hope that I could, that I could draw from. Um, I am an animal lover, and uh, like I said before, I, in fact, we, uh, I remember we had a mouse problem in our our last town we were in because we were by some woods. And so this mouse came in and I got those sticky traps because I thought the sticky traps also killed them, like poisoned them, and they died like quickly in their sleep. And then we caught one. I'm like, oh, it's not dying. And I go on the internet. No, no, it just traps them. And then they thirst to death. And I'm like, that's barbaric and horrible. So I, I, got, some, uh, I got some vegetable oil and, and pried them free. And then the next day, um, and I put them in the woods. The next day, I found this oily mouse in my house. So, um, so I made sure he didn't get back in the house. Uh, I'll say it like that. So the, uh, the Kurt Richner experiment, and I think I've got a, a slide for that, if you don't mind. Um, Kurt Richner experiment. So he, uh, he was testing. He was a psychologist and a biologist at um, John Hopkins University in the 50s. And he conducted this experiment with, uh, experiment with rats. And what he would do is he'd put rats into, you see that beaker of water there about half full to see how long that they would last. Within 15 minutes, nearly all rats just gave up and drowned. But for a few of the rats, what he did, there were wild rats, they were dying almost immediately, even though wild rats are really known for being able to swim for, swim for long periods of time when there's flooding. You see all the rats out. So what he did is he took them out of the water, he dried them off, gave them time to rest, and then he put them back in the water. And they survived not for 15 minutes or 30 minutes, not one hour, not one day, but 60 hours. Hope is a powerful force. They had a hope that they'd be rescued from this perilous situation, and they held on for 60 hours. Our hope is not that some unfeeling, amoral biologist might take us out of a beaker of water. No, our hope is a living hope in a God who sympathizes with our suffering. A great high priest who lived in this world, died in this world, and was resurrected to new life. Jesus Christ, our living hope. And hope is a powerful force. Hope does not disappoint. Romans 5.5 5 tells us that hope does not disappoint. And hope in Christ is eternal and it is built on better things than all the hope in the world could give you. So last time on Patriarchs, we've been doing this series once again through the Patriarchs. So we're like season one, Abraham. Last time on Patriarchs, it's been a lot of waiting we started this in chapter 12 of Genesis, where God first promises, where God first promises Abraham that he would give him a land and he would make him a great nation. In chapter 17, 21, God specifically tells him it will be his actual wife, Sarah, because they had compromised 
with Hagar in trying to do this plan, trying to somehow force God's hand. But he tells him, no, it'll be Sarah that your offspring will be reckoned. In chapter 18.10, the Lord tells Abraham once again that Sarah within the year would give birth and Sarah starts laughing in doubt. And the Lord calls her out for it. So here we have in chapter 21, Isaac has been born and Sarah is the one who is mentioned first here. Chapter 21, the birth of he who laughs. Is, the, is he the hope Abraham waited for? No, he's not. His hope was in more than just waiting for Isaac. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, we are told his hope, he was looking for a city whose author and finisher was the Lord. The point is that we can see with our eyes that no one has, no one has put this hope in Abraham other than the Lord himself. And those who hope in the Lord will never be put to shame. Sarah is 90 years old. Abraham is 100 years old. And God has kept his promise. If Isaac is Abraham's hope, then when God tells him to take his son up to the hill and sacrifice him, of course, if that's his hope, if that's what he's hoping for, he tells God, take a hike. I have what I want. This is what we see in so many people's lives is that once they get what they want, they quickly abandon their morals. They quickly abandon the Lord. Those of you who are a bit younger, you probably know who Mr. Beast is. Mr. Beast, early on in his YouTube career, talked all about his relationship with Christ. Now when he's asked about it, oh no, I don't believe in any of that. I'm, I'm an agnostic or an atheist. You know, there's two great tragedies in someone's life. I believe George Bernard Shaw said this, two great tragedies. One is to lose what your heart's desire and the other is to get it. Our hope is beyond circumstance. Our hope is beyond what is going on. If his hope was in Isaac and Isaac alone, then when the idea of losing Isaac, he would abandon his faith as well. But no, his faith was in greater things. Between the first promise and to chapter 21 right here, it's been 25 years. Those rats, they were treading water for 60 hours. He's been treading metaphorical water for 25 years. But his hope was in greater things. For in chapter 15, verse 6 of Genesis, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's not simply, oh, I agree to these set of beliefs. No, I believe in the person, nature, and character of God. In the last three chapters that we've gone over, there's been a lot of talk of fear. Last week we saw Abraham, he fears the land, the people in the land of Philistines. He believes they have no fear of God. Before that, we see, Ab we see Sarah fearing um, that her fear and Abraham's fear led to them, to them doing what they did with her maidservant, Hagar. If you don't know the story, I'll just refresh you. So they have this promise from God that God would make Abraham this mighty nation through his offspring. God would bless all nations. So Sarah tells Abraham, and you can check this out in the Wayback Machine called El Rohi, the sermon I did on the names of God, El Rohi. And um, they conduct this plan. She figures, okay, I will give you my maidservant, Hagar, the Egyptian, and then you will marry her, and the child you'll have, that'll be my child. And I don't think anybody was buying it. Never in the scripture it says, Ishmael, Sarah's son. Ishmael is Abraham's son physically, they even supposedly marry Hagar to Abraham. But when everything is done, there's no divorce because the marriage wasn't valid. 
So many people will use certain things like this when we say that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman. People say, well, in the Bible, polygamy was okay. No, it wasn't okay. And we have example after example after example after example of how it just rips everything apart. This is one of the examples, but there are so many. So from that fear, they do something that is coming due in this chapter. If you are, if you're, um, then we have Abimelech's fear. Abimelech's fear leads to repentance and it's a good type of fear. It's a fear of the Lord. Fear is good if it's about the right things. If you're walking on the edge of a cliff, you should have a, felt, a healthy fear of falling off. I saw the YouTube video from the Owens. Hope you guys don't mind me calling you out or anything. I'm giving a shout out. They went to the Grand Canyon and it is a bit intimidating going on some of those trails. In fact, they have a little footage. Um, there's like a hundred or thousand foot drop, million foot drop, I can't tell. Um, and there's only kind of a little broad, little path, not a broad path, a little skinny path to walk on. It's a good to have a healthy fear so you're not just going, you know, Leroy Jenkins and running through it. Abimelech, he has a very healthy fear because when God appears to him, he says, you're dead. Did you know before you knew the Lord, that was the Lord's word to you as well. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not kind of alive, not on life support, but you were dead in your transgressions and sins. A dead person can't save themselves, right? Because they're dead. How can they even be saved? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. These last three chapters have also been about the use of laughter. When Sarah hears the Lord telling Abraham that he will have a child and that she will be the mother, she laughs and the Lord tells her off. Lot's son-in-laws, they laugh when, they, when Lot tells them about the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham laughs too, but his laugh is much different than their laughter. When he hears that he will have a son, not through natural means, but supernatural means, not with the slave woman, but with the free woman, his genuine bride, Sarah, he laughs and his laugh is out of faith. It's a laughter of joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. It is the expression when what you believe you are seeing in front of you. When, when Thomas was told that Jesus was risen from the dead. He told the, he told the other disciples, I won't believe it until he shows up and I can put my hand in his hand and my hand in his side. And all of a sudden here's Jesus and he's like, here I am. He doesn't laugh, but he's just so overcome. He says, my Lord and my God. If anybody tells you the Bible does not say that Jesus is God, couldn't be more wrong. That's just one example of so many others. Before chapter 21, we see very interesting things about Abraham and, Sar and Sarai, Sarai and Abram, which was their original names. Abram, Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. And before he actually has this son in chapter 21, he has been a spiritual father as well. When there was the war of the five kingdoms, he takes 30 men who were born in his tents that he had taught to fight. I think that's a great illustration of truly what father and motherhood is, what you're doing with your kids. You're teaching them to be prepared for war because they are going out into a world that is not friendly. And it's a very sad thing, right? We see this all the time. People who are just unprepared for the world that they're flung into. And we get so upset. We're like, oh, they're lazy and stuff. But nobody taught them to fight and they're in the middle of a war. 
Can you imagine right now what you're doing? Some of you went to the military. Let's say those of you who've never been in the military, all of a sudden you're plopped down in the middle of a battle. Nobody even taught you how to load the weapon. And now you're supposed to fight a war. Abram was being a spiritual father to the men in his camp before he was a physical father to Ishmael or Abram. Raising children is the most important job in the natural It's the most important job in the natural. Mothers and fathers, you have the most important job in our society, bringing up the next generation. It's something that our society's forgotten about, unfortunately. MTV rolled around and the founder of MTV said that he wanted to own a generation. And it was through the course of many years that we found out why the Bible said that when John the Baptist came, he would turn the hearts of the fathers towards the sons. When you were growing up in Generation X, that didn't make much sense. You're like, shouldn't it be the sons to the fathers? How come that's secondary and the first is the fathers to the sons? Then as we go through the generations, we see what happens when fathers don't care about their sons and mothers don't care about their daughters. It is, it is terrible. He was a spiritual father before he was a physical father. The most important job in the natural in society is bringing up the next generation. But the most important... Na- Job in the supernatural is bringing up the next generation of disciples, being a spiritual mother and father. Are you making disciples? Are you preparing the believers that you know for war? Because we are in a war. We are in a spiritual war. You know, the first casualty in war is the heart of those who fight it. Are you preparing your sons and daughters? Oh, that was good. You guys see that? Um, Those of you with kids, those of you who are hopefully discipling people, are you preparing them that when they fight the battle, they don't lose their heart because that happens so often? We get so used to the fight, we become like the Ephesians in chapter 3 of Revelation, where where the Lord tells them, hey, I like that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, I hate them too, but you've forgotten your first love. That we can be just so about the fight that we lose our very heart. Are you preparing this next generation for that? So let's get into the, the word today. This is going to be over the whole chapter 20 of chapter 21 right here. But in this, we will find laughing, we will find crying, and above all things, in both circumstances, God will be worshipped. In verses 1 through 7, laughing. In chapter 17, when we get the first mention of Isaac's name, which means to laugh, I talked about the different kinds of laughing because Abraham's laugh wasn't one of doubt, but one of faith. What do you find funny? What makes you laugh? The only things you laugh about or find enjoyment are in, are they just evil things? Or do you have a dimension of your enjoyment of the relationship with God that's joy that's unspeakable and yes, full of happiness and laughter that you have with God? Or is your friendship with the Lord very cold and like a clerk at a job? He's supposed to be a friend that's closer than a brother. But do you share with God your very soul? Or is it like, well, I got to pray today. I got my prayers in. I got my Bible reading in. God should be fine with me. And when something bad happens, I've cashed into that bank. I can make my withdrawal. Or is it truly a relationship? In verse one, God's promise to Sarah. The promise wasn't just to Abraham. It was also to Sarah. Verse one, we are reminded that the promise wasn't only to Abraham, but to Sarah as well. Not just to them, but to Isaac and Rebekah, to Jacob and his wives, and to all who would believe on the name of the Lord His promise is then kept. And it's so much beyond that. It's not the physical children of Abraham either. 
In Galatians, we're told that you are all sons of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus. So I mentioned this before, way, way back when we were starting this, I think chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Is that God, so he waited 25 years for a child, waiting on this hope. In Romans chapter 5, it talks about how Abraham considered himself dead, being so old, but held on to a faith and did not waver. Now in eternity, the Lord turns to Abraham every time somebody comes to faith in Christ Jesus. And he tells him, promise kept. Promise kept. That's the thing with the promises of God. They're so bigger than we could ever possibly imagine. We take them for granted. We just kind of think of them as small things. Well, I got hell insurance now and I'm good. But the promises of God are so much huger than this. He was told that through him, all nations would be blessed. Could he ever imagined that some person in Algona, Iowa would be his son and daughter through faith in Christ Jesus? You know, you know what's really amazing about that too is that they were, they were trying to do that in the natural with Hagar, Right? is that Ishmael would be spiritually Sarah's son, but that didn't work because that was trying to accomplish it through human power. That's how illegitimate it is trying to justify ourselves by what we do as opposed to whose we are. It's like Sarah and Ishmael. Never does it say Ishmael is Sarah's son, but we are told that we are sons and daughters of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus. And every time somebody repents and puts their faith in Jesus, are born again, God turns to Abraham and tells him, promise kept. Promise kept. You don't even know about places like Europe, Abraham, but your sons and daughters are going to come from there. From Asia, the parts of Asia you haven't even heard about yet. Parts of Africa, parts of South America, North America. But they'll be your sons and daughters through faith in Christ Jesus. Promise kept. Sarah We see the great joy of Sarah in this chapter, right? Verses one through seven. She's like, everybody's laughing when they hear about what's going on in my life because God is not slow in keeping his promises. Second Peter 3, 9. If you could put that up there for me. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but all should reach repentance. I've often wondered, why did Abraham have to wait 25 years till he was 100 years old to have Isaac? One of the reasons I think, and I think there's probably many other reasons there in the heart of God, and we can ask him one day, but here's one. If Isaac is born before chapter 15, verse 6, Isaac becomes Abraham's God. And the blessing becomes a curse. I don't think I quite experienced this until... I've pastored people through their own struggle with infertility. And I know people that they struggled, they, they wept, they finally got a child and their relationship with God went to garbage because they got what they really want, but once they got what they wanted, they didn't want what they had. And now they have this resentment for this child and it's just, it's just so heartbreaking because their child became their God. And you see this still with many families. The, the parent who's the helicopter parent The kid can't do anything right. Kid can't do anything right because they're your God and they were supposed to fulfill all the brokenness inside of you. How come they're not doing that? Or it's the person, the kid can't do anything wrong because their kid is their God in their life. And so when the teacher tells them, yeah, little Jimmy keeps biting other kids. They're like, not my little Jimmy. He's perfect. He's my child of promise. Before chapter 15, verse six, Abraham's not ready to have Isaac just yet. He's able to love Isaac better 
because he loves the Lord more. You will love your kids better if you love the Lord more. Isaac's name, in verse three, God, God told Abram, he told Sarah to name him Isaac, which means he laughs. This is a time of great joy. In verse four, we kind of have some foreshadowing here of what's about to happen in the rest of the chapter. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Why is that, uh, what, how is that foreshadowing what's about to happen? It's what circumcision is. It's a cutting away of the flesh. I mentioned that it's not just the physical, but the spiritual. Moses in Deuteronomy told him, you do not yet have uncircumcised ears and uncircumcised heart. You don't understand the law as you should. And we see in the New Testament that that is what God was looking at, not a physical, but a spiritual. In the rest of this chapter, we are going to find the the flesh, the, the, the flesh being cut away, being stripped away. It is unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of heartache once this comes due. In verse five, 90 and 100, faith and hope. Here are, These two carry us through the greatest of storms, faith and hope. Sarah is 90 and Abraham is 100 and God gives them a child. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 7, 3 3 through 5, not only so, but also, we also glory in our own sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, who has been given to us. That puts things into perspective, right? We time, sometimes see all trouble in our life. Why is God doing this to me? But God might actually be using it to make you into the warrior that he wants you to be. We glory in our sufferings. There's nothing that really truly can happen to us that will leave us in despair. And we might be crushed, but we're not, we might be pressed, but we're not crushed. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that our suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame. I mentioned the quote before by George Bernard Shaw that there are two great tragedies in someone's life. This last week, I was listening to this interview um, of Mike Tyson. And the interviewers were asking him, they were saying, it's weird because when we see the footage of you going into prison and the footage of you coming out of prison, you look better when you were coming out of prison after you spent a couple years in the clink. And he's like, they were the best years of my life. And they were like beside themselves. You were a multi-multi-millionaire at the top of your game. And you're saying prison was the best. He's saying, because I didn't have peace. Unfortunately, Mike Tyson still doesn't have peace with the Lord. If he did, he, wouldn't, he could understand, oh, my word, what you're missing out, my friend. But yeah, that's the thing. He said, he's, he said that he thinks that when God wants to punish somebody, he just gives them everything they want. Their faith and hope had got them through the suffering. It also gets them through the triumph to have the right kind of hearts. In verse six, we see another example of the glad laughter There's another type of laughter where you are seeing the unbelievable. Thomas didn't laugh, but when Christ appeared to him and told him to touch his hands and his side, he proclaimed, my Lord and my God. In verse seven, once again, Sarah, she's thinking about how she is the God of the impossible. This is the amazing adventure we have in the Lord. He does the impossible. You know, one thing I love about our Wednesday nights, our Sunday mornings in the youth group and stuff like that is getting to hear bits of your testimonies because I hear about the God of the impossible. 
I hear about things in your life that, that you were like, okay, we didn't think we could pay this month's rent, or we were thinking, or we didn't know, we were just kind of like jumping out of a, of, out of a plane without a parachute. And Alan, I hope you don't mind me sharing a little bit of your story. Alan shared this story this last Wednesday I thought was just fantastic. He was talking about how uh, a lot of, he'd done a lot, of, a lot of things he shouldn't have done. And he was told by his lawyer, don't say any of those things when you go before the judge. We're going to try this one tactic and hopefully maybe we can get it down to around 10 years in prison. And Alan just became a believer during that time. And the Lord was speaking to his heart. No, just, just be honest with everything. So he does. And, and it wasn't very long at all, Alan. It was maybe one, two years, right, if that. Um, that's godly wisdom versus earthly wisdom too. That I have this trust in God. He is the God of the impossible. In verse seven, we rejoice with Sarah. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Is there pure humor in your life? Or have you allowed bitterness and cynicism to darken it? And the only thing you laugh at is evil. When was the last time in prayer you laughed? When thinking about the God of the impossible, this is the joy that comes from knowing and relationship, knowing that God is faithful. There's a documentary you're going to watch on this Wednesday for our midweek ministries called The Taliebo Story. Don't watch it beforehand. I want you to be as surprised as everyone else is when they watch it. It's about these missionaries going to a very remote place in Indonesia. That's where the Eckerts were at. To this tribe who had very little contact with the outside world called the Taliebo. They got to the language, they learned the language of these people, and they took them through the, the story of the scriptures through Genesis all the way to the death of Christ. And these people, they had some folklore about there was a, there was a people amongst the Taliebo, Taliebo people who had left, who had the knowledge of eternal life, and they were living in this time in which they were suffering, and there was all this pain. And in fact, there was this one lady, she has leprosy. She doesn't have fingers. And they get to the point of the of Jesus Christ, and they're excited. They're, they're like, he knows eternal life. He can give us eternal life. They were already starting to understand at this point that it was true eternal life, not on this earth, but with him. And then they get to the crucifixion. You'll see in the footage how incredibly shaken they were. Some of them are like, my only hope is gone. My only hope is gone because our, our, our shame, and they said they had eternal life, but they died too. Now he's died. What hope do we have? And the missionaries, instead of at that moment telling them about the resurrection, they waited. They waited a while. And then when they told them the resurrection, the joy that was unspeakable, the laughter, the shouts, the praising. And I remember this lady who has no hands smiling and saying that she's just as, she's so happy if, if she's living or if she's dying because she will be with the one who resurrects the dead. Is there joy in your relationship with God? Is there laughter like we see here? Doesn't end there. This isn't a fairy tale. There's the rest of life and there's something that happened chapters ago, years ago, that is about to be handled. And this, we start in verse eight. And the child grew and weaned and Abraham made a great feast on that day and I, that Isaac was weaned. Verse nine, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham laughing. 
So she said to Abraham, Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. What had happened before is about to come to a head. Something needs to be done. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4, we are told there's a time to laugh and a time to cry. Real life is filled with both. Real life is filled with that and the monotony of life. Um, as the Dread Pirate Roberts said, anybody tells you anything different is trying to sell something. In verse 8, you might be wondering, okay, why do they have a celebration when he's weaned instead of when he's uh, circumcised or when he's born? I think a big part of it is child mortality rates at that time. He didn't get too excited until the baby was able to really um, nurse and, uh, and, and get past the nursing stage. There's this big celebration, but in the celebration, the shadows of the past are still there. There's these, before we get into that, I want to make sure that we understand there are a certain connection between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is not evil and bad, and Isaac is righteous and good. They represent different promises of God, of the spirit and the flesh. But Ishmael, he's a son of Abraham. Ishmael's mother has a promise from God for Ishmael that is similar to that of Isaac. Remember that as we go on. He's laughing at his younger brother, and this seems ridiculous. He's around 18 years old, and Isaac is maybe one or two. Sarah has a justified fear here, and the Lord bears that out as well. This is hard for us to understand in our 21st century American minds, but we just have to flip a little further in the book of Genesis to see what happens when you have multiple moms but one father and the civil and rivalry that happens when Joseph's brothers lower him into a well. Before that, they wanted to kill him. And they mocked him for his dreams. It's a sad reality, but her fears are justified. In verse 10, so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Verse 11, and this thing was displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Verse 10, once again in Galatians chapter 4, the apostle Paul quotes from this chapter Sarah's own words. The older brother, while having his own destiny, is the son born of the flesh. He would persecute the son born of the spirit. And the Lord tells Abraham to listen to his wife. And that's an interesting parallel that we have between the two, right? Because Abraham, that's how he got into the problem. Not really, though. It's his own choice. Nobody put a knife to his throat. He did what he did. But he listened to his wife, Sarah, and he took Hagar as his concubine, I should say. He has Ishmael. And now the Lord tells him, you listen to her the first time. Listen to her now. And it said it greatly displeased Abraham on account of his son. Yes, it did. I, can't, I, I have to imagine this is like ripping out his heart. Because Ishmael is his son. And he doesn't want his son to go away but at the end of the day, who does Abraham have to blame? No one held a knife to his throat to make him sleep with Hagar. God didn't tell him to do this. When they had made this decision, Sarah's plan was to claim the boy as her own. Once again, I don't think anybody believed that. Just like when you convince yourself that the sin that you are sinning in is okay, you know in your heart of hearts it's already wrong. We tell ourselves, oh, it's just wise. It's prudent for me to do this on my taxes or on this form or on this thing or leading somebody to believe something that's wrong. We already know, though, it's, 
it's wrong. Then we have the consequences of this and you have to, and you have to hand it to Abraham. He doesn't blame God for it. He follows God. Um, I was told last week that you guys like memes. So uh, post the one of the consequences of my own decisions. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can see this or not. Uh, it says, let me see what this really is. And we got the reveal. Well, 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 it's the consequences of my own actions. Abraham, he's, he's, he's distressed. He's crying. But these are the consequences of his own actions. You know, I truly believe everything happens for a reason. Unfortunately, the reason sometimes is, is that we don't make the best of decisions. And it'd be great if our, if our decisions only affected us, right? But they don't. They affect our families. Abraham's decision affects his son. And he has to cast out his son and Hagar. And they are now in the desert. In verses uh, 14, So Abraham rose early in the morning, took, took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down, down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. Um, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened up her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skins of water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. With the bow. Way back, many chapters ago, when Hagar, she kind of had an attitude about herself when she conceived Ishmael and she went into the desert. And God appeared to her there. And after this appearance, she went back to Sarah, her mistress, and she called God El Rohi, the God who sees me. You know what Ishmael means since we're going over the names, names and meanings of names? It means God has hearkened or God has heard. I think I have a slide for that, Emma. You want to pull that up? El Rohi, the God who sees me, Ishmael, the God who hears. Ishmael and, and Hagar, they're not really even part of God's redemptive history, but God still sees and hears them. You are part of it. How much more does he see and hear you? Do you have those moments in your life, the time of despair, and you're wondering, does God even see me? Does he care? Does anybody care when you're passed over? That's a terrible feeling, isn't it? When you get passed over for something. And somebody doesn't acknowledge that what you are doing, it's just rough enough in a job, but in family, in friend groups, does God see me? Does God hear me? God hears you. He sees you. He is El Rohi. Just as he saw Ishmael, just as he saw Hagar and heard them. In verse 17, twice it says that he had heard the boy. He had heard the boy. This is a play on his very name. He sees and he hears. And their mourning is turned into rejoicing, 18 through 21. See what happens here with the slave woman and her son? How God takes care of them? Why do you continue to doubt that he'll take care of you? They weren't even part of God's redemptive plan. You are. You are what what will he do for you? He turns our mourning into rejoicing. 
And the last part of this, of this chapter, verses, uh, starting in verse 22 through, 30, through 34, we see Abraham's response to life, to both rejoicing and mourning. It's worship. It's what Abraham did in several of these chapters. I've been pointing this out. He builds an altar. Now for us, when we think of worshiping, we think of lifting up our voices in song. In the Old Testament, in the ancient world, they thought of sacrifice, building an altar. They had, they eventually did have music in the temple of the Lord, but not, not always. Worship really is sacrifice. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that. Brothers, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to, live, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. People and events in the Old Testament, they are types and shadows of Jesus Christ. Abraham very much is. He's, he is the most revered person from the Old Testament. But Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham is called by God. In our last chapter, God calls him a prophet. He is the leader of his people, so that makes him a king. And he is also lifts up these altars and he functions as a priest. He is the prophet, priest, and king of the old covenant, but Christ is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. In verse 22, we see a, we see a familiar face here, Abimelech, the king, of the, the king of the Philistines. His fear and faith are apparent here. He sees, he sees them in his land. They are still in the land of the Philistines, Abimelech's land, and he sees them multiply. He sees them being blessed. You know what he does? He's like, I want part of that blessing. This is a great juxtapose between him and the Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we see that Pharaoh, he sees that the Jews are in his land and that they are multiplying. They're in the land of Gosha. So he decides to enslave them. Abimelech, he sees them prospering and he decides, no, I'm not going to enslave them. No, no, I want this blessing. But he reminds Abraham, hey, remember last time we met and you dealt with me falsely? I want you to swear now by your God, you won't deal with me or my family deceitfully. This is the thing, you know, God does forgive. He does cast as far as east from the west, but we do have to deal with the fallout that comes from our bad decisions. Abimelech, he wants to be blessed too, but he wants Abraham to make sure he tells him the whole truth. He wants to be part of this blessing. After this, Abraham swears this blessing and he, he, swears, he swears that he'll deal faithfully with him. He's like, now that we brought up this topic in verses 25 and 26, he says, you know something? I do have a problem. He had dug this well and he dug this well and the herdsmen of Abimelech, they had seized the well. He's like, okay, it's my well though. Now you're probably thinking, well, I don't come to church to hear about property rights over a well. This is the boring, mundane part of life. What do we do in the boring, mundane of life in the heights and the lows? We do what we find at the very end of this chapter right here. I'm going to start in verse 32, going through 34. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, which is a play on words, which means seven and oath. They make an oath using seven ewe lambs to make sure that this well is seen as Abraham's. So they made a covenant of Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Philoco, uh, uh, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a uh, tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. He worships. In good times and bad times, are you a worshiper? I want to point out, this is the first and only time the, the name of God, the everlasting God, is mentioned in the scriptures. 
When I saw that, you probably did as well. You think it's a Aaron Schustong? You are the everlasting God. Only once in the scripture. Um, he is called the everlasting God. It is right here. He, our worship transcends our temporal existence as we touch the everlasting God. It gives us perspective that we didn't have before. In times of sorrow, worship reminds us that we truly have joy that is unspeakable. When we envy the proud and the wicked, we see their end when we worship. We realize that we have more than they. When we laugh and rejoice, it keeps us grounded in the promises of God and that those times, if we truly are doing them as unto the Lord, they are eternal. We are not missing out on anything We are not missing out on anything if we do so in worship. It's why David wrote in the Psalms that one thing he would ask of God, one thing he would seek is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Worship team, would you come up at this time? Are you a worshiper? I don't mean, do you sing songs on a Sunday morning? I don't mean, do you have worship music playing in your house? We can all go through the motions, right? We sing the songs, we don't think much of them, but does the worship affect your very soul? Do you do what Abraham did and build an altar during times of triumph and times of struggle and the monotony of life? Are you you found on your knees? When Israel went into battle, do you know who came first? The worshipers. That's not how I would conduct a battle. I would not have the most defenseless people first. But they knew if they were going to win, it would be on their knees, not on their feet. So whether laughing or crying, praise the Lord. Whether laugh or crying, worship God. Be known as a worshiper. Be known as one who is constantly going to the throne of grace with confidence. Where's your relationship with Christ today? Is it a close personal relationship with Christ or is it something that has grown cold? Do you know the Lord today? Are you confident if you died right now that you'd go to heaven? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, do you know that you'd go to heaven or are you wondering, how would that judgment go? Do you fear? Perfect love drives out fear for fear has to do with judgment. Worship brings us to that. And if you don't have a relationship with Christ today, during this last song, this is the day to call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Whether laughing or crying, praise the Lord. Relationship with Christ, how close is that? If it's grown cold, go back to the first things. That's what the Lord told the church in Ephesus. Go back to the things you did before. When you have the passion for God, when you're first saved, and you're like, man, I just want everything of the Lord. We're going to be led in this last song by our worship team here. And during this last song, this is our time to reflect on the message, to reflect on God's word. To ask ourselves, am I, am I a worshiper? Is my first gut reaction in times of tragedy or in times of triumph, in times of joy and laughter, to worship God? Or is it the last thing? This is our time to ask the Holy Spirit to search us, to see if there's anything in us that needs to be brought to the Lord. And maybe in that you find out, no, I don't know the Lord, and I need to call upon the name of the Lord today. I'd love to pray with you during this last song. If you need prayer, come down to the altar. And after that, we will dismiss. Thank you, worship team.